would look at the brains of these violent criminals and over time watch how they changed after committing multiple crimes and then be able to look at the um, brain chemistry sometimes of the sons. Very often sons would develop some violent crime. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Howdy, y'all. It is RJ Singh here from the Ultra Habits Podcast, and we thank you for joining us for another show today. So today we are talking about style. How important is your style? Is it fixed or is it something that you can work with, shift and mold as appropriate? So we talked to Dr. Suzanne Peterson today, who provides counsel and coaching to senior leaders in a variety of industries, emphasizing leadership style and credibility, effective communication and relationship building is building blocks to leadership success. She helps propel her clients towards excellence. Her recent clients include leaders in Fortune 500 firms, Dr. Peterson is a highly sought after speaker where she shares the CRA message of admired leadership, a viewpoint that emphasizes the behaviors that characterize the world's most effective leaders. Dr. Peterson is a leadership professor at the Thunderbird School of Global Management, where she advises and delivers executive education to a variety of global companies. She and her CRA colleagues work on leadership style and presence appears in the November to December 2020 issue of Harvard Business Review. Prior to joining CRA and entering academia, Suzanne worked as a change management consultant. She holds a BA in psychology, an MBA and PhD in organizational behavior from the University of Southern California and the University of Nebraska, respectively. She currently resides in Scottsdale, Arizona. Look, folks, hope you enjoy the show. I came across Suzanne's work on HBR Ideas podcast, loved it, wanted to get her on. Please do let me know what you think. Keen for your feedback and reviews will really help us get this show in order. Take care. Peace, y'all. All right, Suzanne. So I would like to talk about style versus personality. What is the difference and why does style matter? And also, if we can unpack leadership not being authority. I think that's a real key point that you brought out in your article there. Well, style versus personality is probably the biggest question we get when we're coaching individual leaders and have to give them some feedback. Um, The feedback might look like we could be retelling their 360 feedback, or we could just be noticing it. And even as coaches, we'll fall into you, you appear a little unwarm, you're a little abrasive, um, seem a little unrelational, you don't, aren't, weren't very engaged in the meeting. This immediately begins to feel as if we're criticizing the person. And we're saying, I mean, what if someone is abrasive? What if they aren't warm? Um, that may be true or false. We choose not to care that much. And we say, well, personality is generally static. I mean, there is some evidence to suggest over time personality can shift, but largely it's fixed. Instead, I, I would try and go at somebody and say, you know, the fact that you use I language excessively in all your meetings, I believe this, I think we should, I'm doing this. When you have a huge team behind you, it's making people think you're a little bit abrasive or a little bit narcissistic. That's probably why you get those arrogance attributions. 
So style is less about who you are and more about what you do. You know, you interrupt too often. You use eye language too often. You have serious conversations always over happy hours so no one takes it seriously. You tend to use nonverbals that are pointing a lot and that's off-putting. So something is about, we sort of say, you may or may not be those things by personality, but from a development standpoint, I just need to tweak a few things you do verbally, non-verbally, and contextually to set up a very different perception or feeling. So that's really what style is, is getting people to be engaged in a small uh, new sets of habits and new behaviors that are still within their realm of authenticity, but that completely change perceptions. It's a really interesting thing. One, my mentor, who's a, a philosopher and a psychotherapist, he will his view is that when we're operating in personality, we're in a fixed state, which is tends to be determined. It's a determined state by the causes and conditions of how we've come to be. And so he'll, when I'm, you know, when I'm operating less than optimal or I'm operating on old behaviors and ideas, he'll always point out to me that I'm operating within personality. And it, I just found that interesting, just correlating that to your work, because it's quite similar to how he views things and how he articulates that piece on personality as well. I think the biggest piece, the biggest example that people will relate to will be when we talk about how the best leaders build relationships, build their networks, and how they do that a little differently, the best leaders we know. And immediately someone will say something like, you know, I'm really introverted. I just don't think I can do this. So they immediately go to personality and kind of rule themselves out. Oh, I can't be political. I can't be right. I'm shy. I'm, they use all these attributions. Actually, some of the introverted people are some of the best relationship builders we know because it is even building great relationships is a toolkit of behaviors on how do you add value to conversations? How do you add value to relationships? How do you track and follow up with people in a very authentic way? You don't need to be extroverted for that. Even in sales, can it help because you might like it more interacting with people all the time? Perhaps, but it, it isn't a prerequisite for many things. So that relates to what you asked about leadership and authority. You know, style is one aspect of leadership, but certainly we don't equate leadership with authority. We really define great leadership. We call it admired leadership. And admired leadership is any person, regardless of role, title. I mean, this could be as a parent, as somebody in your community, as, as a spouse or partner, somebody that is very high performing in that role, whatever that would mean in that context, but concurrently drives followership, commitment, loyalty, and that became, and even inspiration to some degree. So when you think about that, that is an interesting dichotomy because most leaders that are labeled as leaders are one or the other. They're either really, really high performing, amazing at what they produce, very senior, their career is fast track, impressive, technically amazing, pedigreed, whatever you name it. They aren't always good with relationships, followership. They don't always encourage commitment and loyalty. Or you have the other type. You do anything for some people. You find them magnetic. You feel recognized, listened. You'd follow them anywhere. But frankly, they're a little disorganized. They don't execute as well. They don't make great decisions. They're all over the place. And so these aren't necessarily who people are, but it does tell you how to develop them. So we can go to anybody 
and say, we're going to make the assumption that everybody wants to lead somewhere in their life. And no matter what, if you really want to be effective long-term, you need to be really good at whatever that is you're supposed to be doing, a really great parent. I've read the books. I have the expertise. I know what I need to do to technically be a good parent, but that doesn't necessarily mean that your children will deeply follow, be inspired, be deeply committed. That's a whole other side of great leadership. So style co-varies a little in there in that it's really how you do what you do, how you say what you say. Again, you could give feedback to your son in a perfect way. I could say that could not have been said more perfectly, but you could say it in a really commanding negative voice and it wouldn't matter, right? It wouldn't be heard the way, no matter how perfectly you crafted the message. It's extremely subtle, this whole piece, right? And I would imagine that an individual, when you're working with them, they would need to cultivate a high level of, of awareness is a beginning step, right? Because if someone doesn't have a sense of awareness, I would imagine it'd be quite difficult for them to capture themselves real time when they're being and operating less than ideal. Is that challenging for you guys when you're working with leaders who tend to be quite anchored and they might have biases on how they got to where they're at? How do you manage that whole piece? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the first thing that's usually a clue to that is either some version of, you know what, I've been doing this a long time, kind of you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? That type of mentality. Or this is the way to get it done. I don't particularly care what people think of me. Or they'll, they have an excuse for it. So the classic one would be, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not aggressive, I'm just direct, right? Like, it, you know, so being direct bad, I'm supposed to lie to people? Of course not. But there is a difference. You can be just as direct with someone. And I, I could tell you two different ways. I could say, I really don't like the way that you're carrying yourself in these meetings. I think it's aggressive and abrasive. Or I could say something like this, next time I'd try and ask more questions, fewer direct statements. That way the audience would open up a little bit more. I really said the same thing. I mean, in terms of kind of, but notice I did a couple things that really softened that message, which is I said next time. Criticizing people's last meeting, our performance is over and done with. And of course they're gonna say, well, that's what I needed to do or people are gonna have to deal with it. But when you give them an idea of what to do next time, it changes it. And I just framed it a little bit differently. So one piece is getting them, is, is really asking them the right questions and putting them in that framing. And the other piece to get at self-awareness, typically I ask one question a little different because sometimes people will say, you know, they think they're pretty self-aware, but I'll ask questions like, uh, what would people say about you behind your back? Or what do you think is the most difficult thing people would say working for someone with you or for you? And it's really interesting whether they can come up with something. Some people go, oh, I'll tell you exactly what they'll say about me behind my back, right? And that's somebody pretty self-aware versus, I guess I'd say I'm impatient maybe, but I don't know what else, right? That's, it, that shows they, they really probably don't know. Mm. And people that are seeking feedback a lot usually are pretty self-aware because they're trying to monitor and people that don't really are less so. I, I feel like the executive landscape is also changing, right? Like it's cool to become a bit aware, like you've kind of got the, the movement of um, 
self-awareness and mindfulness into commerce and business. And I think that would help what you guys are trying to achieve versus maybe the CEO of the 1980s, right? So um, in your interview on the HBR IdeaCast, you say that great leadership style can enhance perceived competency whilst a poor leadership style can drag down a super skill set. Can you talk a little bit more about this, Suzanne? Yes, I think the number one frustration for some people is either to watch other people have the same ideas or worse ideas, but get completely, get engage an audience. This, the classic idea of, didn't I just say that five minutes ago? And now Sounds like when I'm like, talking to my wife, Suzanne, and I tell her something, she'll, she'll, and she won't listen, but the neighbor tells her it's all, <laughs> it's all. Right, it's exactly that. Like, what did I, I see she's too used to your style. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. The um, so one of those things would be to see that frustration where some people will notice that and say, why is it that I don't get listened to, but that person does? I'm just as smart, just as experienced, probably have better ideas, but somehow I don't have influence. Now, this is where it comes in that a lot of times people might say, is it because I'm a woman? Is it because I'm young? Is it because I'm a person of color? Is, it, is that why I don't get listened to? And by the way, I don't want to belittle that. Can that happen? I am sure. But usually what I do is rule that out first and say, is it, is it that or is it just a stylistic thing? So let's look at what that other person does stylistically. Now, even more commonly are people that are just as that are frustrated because they feel they do get passed over consistently. They have all these bright ideas and for some reason it doesn't get listened to, but it can be just as common to have a bad idea and have it get listened to because you have a great style. And that is, you know, that was the example I was giving. So it's one or the other where people tend to feel frustrated. You know, why do I not get listened to? Or why does that person get listened to? And usually that differentiating factor is style. And all things being equal, when you have two people that equally talented and they're competing for a job or a position or an opportunity, typically style wins the day because it's loud. It's the classic quote of, you're so loud, I can't hear what you say. And the style is overpowering. We don't have to look too far than the recent political landscape, you don't have to talk about that here, to see a style that is so strong, it's hard to hear the message, right? And we've been through that, especially in the United States, of course, on whatever you might think of, of, of a politi politician's views, the style matters, right? It gets, it's part of the dialogue. That's a really interesting point because reflecting on that in Australia our politicians and leaders are non they wouldn't be considered stylish and mm -hmm. there tends to be less influence there's less charisma in leadership here and I think it's something that's quite prominent in the U.S. obviously growing up there now when I reflect in the U.S. community, especially style, charisma, the ability to kind of be evangelical is, is, is very important, isn't it? Yes. And when you have to sit on that global stage, you are also going around the world where there's different uh, there's different styles that are a little more provocative. But if even you look at the last 15, 20 years in American politics, certainly what overwhelmingly the discourse is, whether it's that person's not articulate enough, 
oh, she's too abrasive and off-putting and needs to do something different with her clothes. Um, she sounds like a third grade teacher, not a politician. She doesn't sound competent, right? He's really aggressive and you don't like anything that he says, right? This tends to be the, the, the conversation that comes first before we actually start diagnosing their competence. Now, maybe around the world, I think it's not, it isn't always as strong. It matters. As I mentioned in the podcast um, in over in New Zealand, right? Jacinda Ardern gets a lot of uh, props for her style being that middle ground, very competent, certainly direct. Now, sometimes I talk to people in your part of the world, Australia, New Zealand, and they'll say, interesting, she has a little bit different reputation here than she maybe does globally. Right. And, and so those, those are style issues too, if she shifts based upon the culture. We, we have in Australia, what is called tall poppy. And it's a culture where if you, if you, if you try to self-promote people are like, oh. and one of the positive results is there's not a lot of hero worshiping but one of the negative sides of it is people don't tend to take themselves too seriously. And when you really are driven, you almost kind of have to laugh at yourself. Yes. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic. One of the scary things though, I suppose, of what you just said is that in a, in a culture where we're driven by style, we can easily be manipulated as well. Right. Mm, it's interesting to reflect on. So I, I just want to move into the blended markers. Can we unpack what that is, in particular, the power and attractive behaviors? Yes, and what's so amazing about power and attractiveness is people are attracted to one side or the other. And the first thing I like to say is that it is not, one is not superior to the other. You should not be saying, I wish I was more powerful or I wish I was more attractive. Again, I always like to preface it. I try and say this every time I talk about it. Attractive style has nothing to do with physical attractiveness. Uh, this means approachability. Yeah. Some people think, gosh, like it's, you know, a trap. What does that have to do with anything really? Yeah. So uh, it's a communications term, this attractiveness, but it means I'm drawn towards you as opposed to power can often be, you can be in awe by it, but sometimes it creates distance in some way. So that's an important distinction. But even relating back to what you said before about, about culture and context, this is important that is you're very specific from situation to situation. I don't go to somebody and say, you need to lean more attractive across the board. You need to lean more powerfully across the board because every situation matters. So you mentioned self-promotion. I was working with a woman the other day, uh, an investment banker. She's a young investment banker in a, in a top you know, five bank in the world. She's in, a, in the United States, but she's Chinese. And she's been in the United States about since her education, so about a decade. When I was watching her, I was helping her practice for a really an upcoming pitch. She said something when they were asking about her background in the pitch. She said, well, I, went, I, I, I first received my MBA and they said, oh, where'd you go to school? And she said, Ithaca, New York. And then I went, and when I got off later, I said, did you go to Cornell, which is an Ivy League school? And she said, yes, but I, I try and be very humble. 
Mm. Interesting culturally, right? She would be more humble. But I said, you have to say Cornell because of your age. <laughs> you're young. You don't have a track record. I said, if your senior banker comes in, who's been doing this for 25 years and goes, I, and then I went to Cornell, it looks like, okay, buddy, you're trying to throw your pedigree at us. Mm. Instead, he'll talk about deals and transactions. But so that would be an example of, I'm not going to go tell her to start promoting herself all over. But I'd say, I think it's actually important for your credibility that you don't go so deferential in that conversation to really not even want to tell them where you went to school when where you went to school is really impressive. Mm. But I would give the boss the opposite advice. Don't talk about your pedigree. You don't need to. You're powerful in your, how you carry yourself too much. So a blend really is this executive presence that everybody wants. When people hit style just right and you see it, you say, I just like this style. And people are trying to dissect, what is it? Usually the person was powerful enough to get listened to. So they use enough power markers that you find them dynamic, compelling, you respect them, you find them expert, credible, whatever it is, but you find them attractive enough to be followed. I wouldn't mind hanging out with them, would enjoy dinner with them, uh, could ask them questions. I sense a little bit of humanity and vulnerability. When you go one side or the other, this is where we get these attributions, like all power all the time. Yes, the person's probably smart, but want nothing to do with them, really don't want to listen to them. Or really nice person, would love to have dinner with them. I mean, I'm not sure I'd have them on my team. They're not, they don't seem like they, they're really sharp, but really nice. And so we're trying to get people to find that middle ground for them. It, it would also be... Uh contextual, I'd imagine, in, in, in the form of industries, right? So I would imagine certain industries, would you be perceived as a strong leader if maybe you were more analytical and had less people skills, but that industry kind of is analytical by nature? For instance, maybe the yeah. scientific community versus maybe tech or, uh, or management consulting, I would imagine styles vary, right? Yes. Now I would, I would still say this is where the competitive advantage is, where I talk about it being a differentiator. So working with two leaders right now, one is a quant, right? Again, in the hedge fund. So highly numbers driven, lights out smart. The reason why he's going to get his next job is because he's going to market himself as a quantitative person with the ability to lead and inspire a team. Whereas everybody else is gonna compete against, it's gonna be really hard to find that. So as I've, I'm no, I don't need to work on his quantitative skills. I, I don't even understand that world, the level he does. But what I can do is make him a little bit more engaging, more compelling of a communicator, a little warmer in how he interacts, how he inspires his team, recognizes people. Because then he becomes, if, you, if all things being equal, if they're all quantitatively great, do you want the one that can lead the team or the one that can't? That's so right. yes, it's more desirable or it's a must have if you're in marketing or sales I and mean, it's kind of a must have that your style is good enough, right? To get you in the door and get you to the sale or get you to work with people. But in these other areas, it's a total standout. In the process, when you're taking a client through this change, are they faking it till they make it? 
And especially if they're less than, um, they're not necessarily people, people, and they can be a bit awkward at the best of times. How do they ensure that they come across authentic? So there is an element of all leadership when you want to get better at anything that you have to accept that some change matters. You know, when people talk about being authentic, sometimes it's as if they're saying, I won't change anything. And we certainly aren't trying to change who people are. That's the whole point. We want the uniqueness and the diversity of people's personalities and even their styles brought into all sorts of contexts. But we want them to ask a question, which is to say, in this situation, how do I need to be perceived? Right? You could imagine in a tough conversation with an employee that I really care about and I want to succeed, I want to be perceived as their biggest fan, as trying to fi- figure out a solution for them. Versus in this situation, I have an employee who hasn't listened to me. The last six times I've given this feedback and he's not accountable. I need him to see me as the manager, as someone that can control his career, and someone that is not going to tolerate a sixth offense of this. Very different style, but the same person. Now, how you or I might deliver those messages is that's our uniqueness. You know, I, you might be more direct than I am or, but within who we are, you could imagine you would have those two employees and you would say, wherever my range is, I want to be seen more serious with this one and more soft with this one. So as long as we're moving within our range, that's comfortable, people may still say, okay, that's a shift for me, but it's not so big that they can't make that change. And I think that's where good coaching comes in is to be able to say that person isn't going to go away over here and do that. I can probably get them to move here, which is enough for them, right? It's still enough of a change for them to be perceived differently. Do you ever need to shift an individual's range? You grow the range for sure. You'll, you need to get them comfortable with a little bit of range shift first. And then as soon as they're comfortable and that range becomes more the norm, then you try and shift them a little more. The example I like to give people is I think, you know, I wasn't born with a large range, but over time I've developed a really wide range of having to maybe be the, you know, whether it's the professor or the expert or the speaker, right? I have to sometimes lean quite powerfully depending upon the audience all the way to one-on-one coaching with someone who could be in crisis, who could have lost their job and passed over for promotion they don't really want me to come in and say, listen, here's the six things you need to do and listen up. Right? They're like, uh, I want empathy. <laughs> but nor did the group of traders want me to say, hi, guys, how you feeling? Or hi, ladies, how you feeling today? You ready to talk? Like, they're like yeah. get to it. Right. So I, I sort of have to decide I need to be perceived one way here and one way here. And what's comfortable where a person that knew me best wouldn't say, you're a totally different person from one context to the other. They would just say, oh yeah, no, I see that side of her. And sometimes I see that side of her. There's that range has grown. You know, there's something really interesting that you're, you, you've brought up and it's just kind of made me realize um, on the back of conversations that I have with other men in particular um, in, in executive land and at Ultra Habits, we, we tend to be quite a masculine brand. So I have lots of conversations with men around the piece of fluidity in roles. So being able to 
shift gears with our children versus how we may be when we're running our business and whether it's male, you know, man, woman, I'm sure this, this is an issue for, for everyone. In your studies and in terms of what you guys impart, what's the view on roles and, and how an individual is able to move between roles and I suppose that level of agility. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? A lot of the agility comes from, it's really a time management thing, truthfully. That sounds like a stretch, but most of the time, a lot of leaders and a lot of very busy people, they, they lose sight of their biggest priorities, of they're not finding time for the things most important. And I'm sure with ultra habits, you really see this, whether it's the run that you have to prioritize, you want to spend time with your children, you're trying to still see your friends, you have to build your business, you need to sleep, right? There's relationships to keep up, there's things like this to do. And what happens is as soon as people get busier and busier, they no longer have time for everything. Everything doesn't have a place. They lose sight of their biggest priorities. A lot of them go away. And then what happens is they have trouble shifting because you're sitting there, you're so busy working on something because it's so critical and you know it's time to go have the meal with the family. And of course you want to theoretically, but you're kind of you know, almost um, resentful of the lack of time. And, and so then they don't shift as well. When we get people to really say, you must create time and block your calendar for what's most important first. I mean, every day I, I go in a whole month in advance and I block off the most important things. I put acronyms or whatever, so that anybody that tries to block over it, one of the things we say is a lot easier to say no to something when there's a yes somewhere else. So when I have that big block, whether it's the run or it's the time with the family, and now someone says, hey, can you do this interview? You might give it up occasionally because it's that important. Everybody's going to shift things around 20%. But you really want to be able to look at that and say, if I want to keep that part of my life a priority, I need to do better to say, you know, I can't do Tuesday at that time. I could do later or I could do Wednesday. And then people tend to shift better into these different styles to say, okay, how do I need to be perceived as a dad today versus how do I need to be perceived in this work event? That, that's such a good answer because I used to think for the longest, it was all about this level of mindfulness and being able to shift. And I didn't give enough credit to the pull of in my environment. And so what I've realized over the last year is not necessarily having to depend on me being mindful, but controlling my environment a little bit better. And to your point, I was actually just talking to my wife about this two days ago. We notice when I slow down on Friday, when I don't, when I kind of don't do as much hectic work on Friday, I ease into the weekend better versus if I'm like flat out Friday, I've got this hangover on the weekend and I'm like in sergeant mode Saturday morning. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's do this. And it's like, everyone's like, man, just chill out. Yeah. Such an interesting, such an interesting point. 
But that's right. And it's finding that balance for you. I have some clients, I say, you need to have two days a week, zero meetings, because meetings take away your ability to have deeper thinking. Um, some people say I block Fridays from said 12 to four, and I just sort of get organized, I do some deeper thinking, but I don't take the kind of input, because I can't settle in, or I start my Mondays a little slower, rather than letting it hit me so quickly. So we all find that that's where we're not perfectly prescriptive because everybody's lives and their needs are a little different. And frankly, their focus. I could put a block of two hours for something and be able to do that for two hours with no break and not think anything of it and wouldn't even be slightly distracted. Other people, they can work in 25 minute increments only before they're just, you know, they're untethered. So finding what works, but it is really saying, put those big rocks, the most important things in, focus on that and then let everything else pile around it. Brilliant. This next piece really appeals to my existential style. I really am a big believer in focusing on the behaviors and outcomes and letting that kind of redefine the way I'm thinking or feeling. And there was a, a piece in one of the articles I read where you're talking about not wrapping yourself up in how you feel, but to focus on the behaviors. And we know that some of Cuddy's work is quite orientated around feeling. And whilst I find it interesting, I also find feelings completely laid with landmines, right? Because on any given day, you can feel a certain way and I'm, I'm after more consistency. So can we talk a little bit more about that? Yes, and it is. This is where I think there's a differentiator with uh, our work and Cuddy's work, who I'm a huge fan of her work, by the way. Love her TED Talk, love the articles. Um, I often recommend it, but it is different. Um, There is a difference between what she talks about, which is how do I get myself viscerally, literally down to the hormone level, feeling a certain way, right? When I feel powerful, I will act powerfully. So she leads with the feeling, you know, it's the power markers, like the, in terms of the power poses and how do I jump up and down and get that testosterone moving or cortisol or something. Now I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah. And it works by the way. I noticed this because when I do a lot of large scale speaking engagements, i never used to do necessarily the throw the arms in the air, but I would notice it's true that they try and get me, they'd go into a green room, they try and get me to like sit down, have a tea. And I naturally, my everything in my body just wants to stand and walk around and move. And if I'm moving and then just go onto the stage, it's like, I'm just in motion. And I, I, instead of sitting there going, I hope I don't mess up. I hope it's okay. And sitting there. So actually, I think there's a lot to that. Where we come in a little differently is not, it's not a contra, you know, a contrast theory, but it's just a different way of looking at it is somebody comes up to me and says, I just don't have the confidence in these meetings with all these people, 20 years old or more experienced. They're all men or they're all, you know, I'm the only person of color, whatever they have that is their lack of resource in their view. So can you give me confidence? And I say, probably not that quickly. No. I mean, I can tell you how great you are, but it's not going to matter. So you're just going to have, you are going to have to fake it a little bit, but you're not going to fake it in a way that's like this strange thing. It's like, no, I need you to have perfect posture. Posture makes other people think you're confident. I mean, if I'm doing this, right. Um, so if I walk with great posture, maybe that makes me feel better. Maybe it doesn't, I don't know, but let them see great posture, make eye contact pe- with people. 
if that's culturally appropriate. Like in the United States, right? Eye contact's a high confidence marker. Obviously in some of the Asian cultures, you would not look up if the people were more senior. But assuming that you have the right markers, what are you gonna do to make people think you're more confident than you are? And then once you get into it, you will find, I did that four times. Actually, now I am more confident. So we just want them to have some success and create that history of past success, which is where confidence comes from anyway. But we might need them to even set the context in a way. So I mentioned that a lot because it's the idea of we've all been in a, a meeting room where it's no windows, it's dark, it doesn't feel comfortable, right? That creates a very different feeling than one that's well lit with some fresh air coming in and we can pop outside. So context will, will matter. So sometimes you can just simply tell people if leaders can often set the context, what context is going to make you feel more comfortable? Are you comfortable inside, outside, big audience, small audience, round tables? You want to be on stage? You want PowerPoints? You, what makes you feel confident? So set the context too. And then people start to say, yeah, I guess I don't have to worry so much about how I feel. That's so much harder. Let me just act my way into some new things. Such a good, it's such a good point that illustrative examples to yourself effectively are, is what gives you confidence and competence, I suppose, right? Knowing that you've been through a situation before and the external environment has reacted positively gives you that level of confidence, right? right. Yeah, it, it happens on really, really long runs, right? You know, you're running... You, you, you might do a 60 or 70 kilometer race, or you might have a hundred kilometer race and uh, your last training session, you'll do 80 or 90 K just to know that you can do it. And it changes the frame of when you actually get to race day. Right. That's right. Yeah. So um, I actually want to talk about examples of people that you feel personify. I know that you said Jacinda Arden, who is quite popular in this part of the world. Can you talk a little bit as to why you feel she embodies this ability to blend and maybe some other individuals that you feel do this well? So one of the things that where her blend came in uh, for me when I was studying her to some degree was her communication style was quite direct. She did not stray away from questions. She had answers. She stood toe to toe, whether it was with a tough comedian or another politician. She had her view heard. These are some of her power markers. But where the attractive markers came in was whether it was her being one of the first um, women ever to bring a young child on the UN floor. She was somebody who I've since learned that this is not uncommon in New Zealand, though I did not know this. I found it was interesting people would call her by her first name. Now, some of the Kiwis I've known said, actually, that's very common for us. But nevertheless, on a world scale, to watch them call her by her first name. She was, you know, barefoot at different times. She has no problem bringing in her personal life. So she doesn't apologize like so many women feel forced to do, right, for her femininity or the being maternal and um, being a mother. But she's clearly been reelected multiple times. She and she has strong views and she gets the respect of world leaders, even amongst a very small country, right? She is able to flex, flex some power there. So she's one that I think is able to walk that line, powerful enough to get listened to, 
attractive enough to be followed. People can relate to her on both sides of that style spectrum. Can I, can I just ask you, do you think Jacinda would be successful in the American context? I actually think so. Um, probably because, and, and the reason I say that is most likely my lens by being American probably is an American bias slightly, right? Meaning I look at her style and I right. say, she'd be terrific. Right. So what I'm probably saying is if she walked into one of the tech companies or the investment bank, or she was a politician here, I think she'd work, right? I really think we'd find that appealing. It could actually be different in other parts of the world. Maybe they don't like some of that attractive style. Maybe they think she's too strong, right? So I believe she actually fits a style that would work um, in America as well. It's a complex thing because what you're, what you guys are focusing on is very subjective and very subtle, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm. Now, I want to shift the conversation to you, Suzanne. I know that you don't like to talk a lot about yourself, but can you, I know that you were a professional or you did ballroom dancing, right? Okay. How did you go from ballroom dancing into what you're doing today? Just interested to understand your personal journey. Yeah, so really interesting. Even more than that, as I started out before I went into business or dancing or anything, I thought I was going to be a forensic uh, psychiatrist for the FBI. There you go. Um, I'm dating myself a little bit, but I was obsessed with Jodie Foster and in Silence of the Lambs. And I'm like, I am going to be her. So um, the funny part was I went to work when I went to uh, the University of Southern California for my undergraduate. I wound up moving majors a lot, but wound up majoring in psychology and worked with one of the world's leading criminologists. And he studied psychopaths and he studied the, what was called the crime gene, wanted to know if deeply violent crime was genetic from father to son in particular, or if it was just environmental. So bottom line is I studied a lot of uh, serial killers, psychopaths with him, fascinating area of study, a little dark, but well, we would go to some maximum security prisons right, around the country. And I remember one time when you walk in and because they're all male prisons and if you are a female there, I mean, they completely like put you in like a sack and take all makeup off. And I mean, you're like, you don't even know what you're getting yourself into, but you're just like, oh my gosh. Like, so then you walk in, you do this. It's very bizarre, of course, as you would, I mean, these are obviously people are crazy. So you come out and finally, he just looked at me after about the fourth time. He said, oh, oh honey, you know, I think you're meant more for business suits than orange jumpsuits. <laughs> question, Suzanne, and question, disclaimer, you don't have to name any names. Have you found any correlation between psychopaths and executives? <laughs> uh, for sure, sociopaths. <laughs> sociopaths. <laughs> yeah. um, the narcissistic gene. It's just interesting. Did they, did they actually find a connection genetically? Was there anything there or was it? He did. And I actually was able to help with some of the MRIs. So they would look at the brains of these violent criminals and over time, watch how they changed after committing multiple crimes, and then be able to look at the um, brain chemistry sometimes of the sons. Very often sons would develop some violent crime. And so again, was it because 
environmental or genetic. So he did find some of that. Um, there was certainly some pushback in the field of psychology before what that could mean. If we thought those things were genetic, what would that mean for mm. them having children? What would that? So, you know, it was not uncontroversial, but fascinating to study. Mm. But I wound up giving up on that a little bit because I, th I actually did. I mean, I make a joke of it, but I listened to him and he just said, I think you're somebody who, you know, I don't know if you want to study these people all the time, right? This level of kind of negative negativity all the time, which is really what it is. And in, the, in between that, I wound up finding the dancing, which I also, when I was at USC, you know, originally I thought, oh, I want to be an actor, right? That'll be great. So I was really into this performance piece, <laughs> But I didn't want to like, just hope it worked out. I yeah, knew that right. the chances were low. So I just thought I'm not doing that either. It was LA, everyone's doing it, yes, right? <laughs> and I just like, no, so, you know, I'll just go get these. So I was sort of building this, this profile of myself of somehow really like psychology, like to study things in depth. I also kind of like the performance side. So I'm thinking, what career is this? I thought sports broadcasting, because I'm a big sports fan, I, you know, all sorts of things. And I got another mentor that told me, which really brings me to a, my biggest piece of advice, which is you've just got to listen to people, right? Listen to people that know you, let them help guide your journey, um, who recommended I go into business. So I went into the, the field of business studying organizational psychology. But at the time, as I was building that career, my outlet was this ballroom dancing for the performance. I love it. And it was this totally other area for me where I had to be so serious. I was in this PhD program. Everything's, you know, and you're around, you know, you're just, it's all about your brain. And I went into this dancing. It was just all about feel, right? And all about just performance. And I kind of like a different persona. So I did Suzanne, that for a have long you time. Seen, have you seen that movie, Strictly Ballroom, is it? Yes, love Australia. that movie. They, I actually had to watch that in my undergrad in San Francisco. Yeah. It was around soci sociology or bizarre that they made us watch it, but that was my exposure to ballroom dancing. Yeah. Now, I still miss it a lot. Uh, when I had my first child um, is when I was really probably at the height of my competitiveness, but I was also at the time where, you know, my age was such that I, you know, you, you have to decide. And then I came back after uh, having her and kind of used it to get back in shape and we competed a couple more times. But then when my son came along, it just became between my career, the two children, I couldn't practice like that anymore. Um, so I, I gave that up, but it's, it, it taught me a lot, even from leadership followership, because truly you have to understand how to follow, right? If you don't let, in this case, the man lead, it, you will not dance well. And following means being slightly late, slightly behind. And as a person who was very assertive, I always wanted to, you know, oh, well, I know where to go. I know what to do. Like, pretend you don't know. Let me lead. Right. right? Now, um, but I learned a lot that way. I can definitely feel the rhythm coming through because when you speak, it's like you're Yes. <laughs> yeah, I love it. But um, Suzanne, we'll wrap up there. I really, really want to thank you for your time. It's been super insightful. Honestly, You're I welcome. think the, the subject matter is so fascinating. And again, just really want to thank you for your time. I will ask you, where can our audience find you in your work? Now, I think really, if you're deeply interested in the best leaders, 
even going to admiredleadership.com. There's a bunch of complimentary content on there. It just gives you our perspective on leadership, which, which we think is special, that leadership is all about behaviors. It's not a temperament. It's a choice. You choose to engage in different behaviors. You get different results. You're considered a much more effective or what we call an admired leader. That's the best place to, to really look for where our passion is. The style uh, content has become, has really resonated with people so much that you can look for it in the coming, about the next two months, uh, thestylecode.com. You won't find it yet. We own the domain name, but we, we're building the website. And that's going to have a bunch. We're going to analyze a lot of uh, famous styles, a lot of famous people. Plus, obviously, we'll have offerings on there as well. So look for that in the coming months. Thank you so much, Suzanne. You're welcome. Thank you.